You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson with Salvatore Babones. I'm delighted today to be able to converse again for the second time with Salvador Babones, Associate Professor at the University of Sydney and Adjunct Scholar at the Centre for Independent Studies. He holds a PhD in sociology from John Hopkins University in the United States. His 2018 work, which we touched on extensively in our last conversation, was the new authoritarianism. And I think very significantly indeed, it was voted one of that year's best books on politics by the Wall Street Journal. Now, his latest book is really important for us in Australia. Uh, Those of us who think our universities are important and play a major role in our society, uh, but we seem to be perhaps stumbling a little. It is Australia's universities. Can they reform? Uh, And I can't think of something that ought to be more closely studied by our legislators and by our universities themselves. Salvador, terrific to have you with us again. It's a pleasure. Let me, just before we come to universities, can I get your diagnosis since we last uh, sort of talked? We've had a couple of years now uh, watching the world struggle with COVID. I'm interested in your views on how Western society has coped with it. Your book, The New Authoritarianism, argued that the Western democracies are being challenged internally by a rising expert class or what some people now call an expertology or an expertocracy, expertocracy. Uh, and that that class is increasingly dismissive of and even overriding the sovereignty of nation states, not to mention the will of the people. It's almost as though they say, we know best. More specifically, you argued, I think very interestingly, that Brexit and Trump's presidency were a reaction to a popular response to uh, this form of new authoritarianism. Can you fill us in? How do you see it now? Has the path of Brexit and the state of post-Trump Washington demonstrated an effective and lasting and popular pushback against, to use your words, the tyranny of experts, or are we still grappling for freedom from them? John, the best thing to ever happen to American democracy is that Donald Trump was kicked out of office. And the reason is that now we see what the other side is going to do with its power. (laughs) We have seen the last year such an incredible power grab by the liberal expert class. And by that, I don't just mean Joe Biden and the Democrats. I mean the whole establishment that stands behind them, the American political establishment that will brook no dissent. If Trump had won in 2020, we would now be seeing just another year, another two years, another four years of anti-Trump activism. With Trump gone, now we see what the other side really looks like. And it's not pretty. I mean, we're seeing the FBI investigations, the politicization of the security services, a a, a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the United States talking, bragging about how he would not permit the president of the United States to execute lawful commands. Uh, We're now seeing the uh, fact that Hillary Clinton's campaign had not only spied on the Trump campaign, spied on the White House itself with the collusion of civil servants who had been hired to protect the White House servers, protect them from Donald Trump, apparently, who was the president of the United States, not to protect them from her. Uh, We've seen 
the national security advisor of the United States, who was Hillary Clinton's uh, campaign advisor, uh, say that he you know, knew nothing about this story until he read it in the papers. And then it turns out he's the one who hired the hackers who hacked the Trump White House. Uh, so now all of this is becoming visible. We can see what, well, given the, given the chance, we've seen what the expert class will do. Uh, we're seeing it in Canada with Justin Trudeau weaponizing the uh, the Emergencies Act against a peaceful protest of truckers. We've seen it in Dan Andrews, Victoria. Uh, we're seeing it around the world. So I think it's a, it's a lucky thing in a strange way that the Trump phenomenon took a little four-year break so that we could all have a clear contrast between what happens when populists get in power and what happens when authoritarians get in power. And I think we'll see a return to the populists in a few years. Well, that's interesting. Now, you're a great Democrat in, the, in as much as you're a passionate believer in a good, wholesome argument, as long as it's not personal, Absolutely. based on facts and reality and, uh, and, and, and wanting to take the country for, further forward. But what's happening now is that I think people in the street feel that they are treated by disdain, or with disdain by you know, the expertocracy, by the new technocrats and, and by their fellow travellers, frankly, uh, in government and, can I say it, uh, amongst the activist community, including a lot of business leaders today. So how, what do you think the frame of mind of people is in, in, the, in America and more generally in the Western democracies? We've got an election coming up in Australia. Sure. I'm worried that there's a high degree of scepticism bordering on cynicism, and you can't do much when you get too cynical. The American political establishment and its allies overseas will brook no dissent. Now, in the Republican Party in the United States, that has had them more or less ejected from office. I mean, the never Trumpers are pretty much going in the 2022 uh, primaries. They're, they're not even running for office again. In the Democratic Party, we saw the popular uprising, the Bernie Sanders movement, completely quashed. Um, anyone who thinks that the Biden White House is governing from some kind of absolute leftist perspective hasn't talked to a leftist recently. This is the American political establishment asserting its authority. They may have used leftists to help them get into power, uh, but the Sanders camp has absolutely no traction over the Democratic Party in the US right now. Uh, what I'd like to see is an election, perhaps the 2022 midterm elections in the US, that sweep away this establishment wing of the Democratic Party, reopen the Democratic Party to truly progressive politics. And the reason is not that I'm on one side or the other. I'm not a conservative, I'm not a progressive. What I want to see are people having clear choices. People knowing that when they vote, that vote will have consequences, that politicians will actually implement the policies that they're elected to, uh, to put into place. Uh, we have seen too much for too long, politicians simply taking the vote and saying, thank you, come again in four years, <laughs> or in Australia, thank you, come again in three years, uh, without actually delivering on their promises. And hopefully, we're going to put that behind us, at least for another generation. I think that's a, an interesting and a very important uh, take uh, on what's happening. Democracy in the end can only work if people feel that the people they put in government respect them and are responding to what they want. But there's also a place for leadership, isn't there? You know, leaders have to actually lead They've, because the world's a very difficult and a very dangerous place at the moment and unpopular decisions have to be made as well. How do you get that balance right 
Is it about the people simply having confidence that you're on their side, not about yourself? The leader's job is to organize public opinion. It's not to dictate public opinion. Leaders should be trying to help draw what are really out in the public, just a, a lot of inchoate ideas about what people want, mutually contradictory policies that people want anyway, and to pull them together into a coherent policy framework. Then if the people want that policy framework, they elect a leader number one. If they don't want that policy framework, they elect leader number two. I, I don't think the job of leadership is to push unpopular policies on people. It's to convince people that their policies are right. I think I'm just making the point, uh, uh, not to dwell on it too long, but having been in that job at times, I think even just to be respected, you have to call out the tough decisions when they're in the national interest. And people will respect it if you argue sure. it well enough. I'm thinking really of the strategic environment we're if, operating in Australia at the moment. I think yeah. it requires tougher decisions that are being, than are being made if and a greater sense of urgency than we have. At if moment. your tough decisions are really in the national interest, I guarantee you the nation will swing behind you. Oh. Well, thanks for those thoughts, but I really uh, today wanted to talk about something that should really interest all Australians, given that a staggering number of our children now go through universities. They are massively shaping in our society. They appear to be in crisis. So here we have it. Australia's universities, can they reform? <laughs> thanks, the blue book, as I like <laughs> to go, call it. The blue book, yeah, there yeah. you go. Uh, you put a lot of work into this. But let me begin with a really basic question. What is a university? <laughs> well, it depends who you ask, right? I mean, what a university was, was a unique form of educational institution that arose in medieval Europe and has continued through till today. I mean, the grand old universities, the Oxfords and Cambridges of the world are 800 years old. The Bolognas of the world uh, are 800 years old. Even the Harvards of the world, we forget Harvard's been around for something like 400 years. These are not new institutions. And they are institutions that existed to offer the baccalaureate. The Bachelor of Arts is the classic degree. It used to be the only degree uh, of the university. It's a purely Western cultural innovation, probably the best thing to come out of the Middle Ages, and it has been adopted worldwide. The whole world does universities the way the medieval West did universities, the way they evolved through the Renaissance and the Enlightenment through the 19th century, uh, and has adopted it. And, it's a, an incredibly popular form, I'll tell you that. There's hardly a country in the world that doesn't have or want to have universities on the Western model. Understood. Um, well then, you say uh, on page nine, I think this is really interesting. Uh, we read every day that there's a crisis in the universities, particularly with COVID and foreign students. We hear all the time that they don't have money and governments are starving them and so forth. But you're right, if there is a crisis in the Australian university system, it is not primarily a financial crisis, nor is it, properly speaking, a free speech crisis. We hear a lot about that too. You're right. It's a moral crisis. It's a breach of faith, a betrayal of the public trust. You know, you are effectively saying it's a, it's a failure of mission. Can you elaborate on this? Um, and, and I assume it's not just Australia. You've, you've not just broad Australia. international experience. Our university is so core to the Western model of, of if you like, advancement, nourishing of our cultures, seems to be in crisis everywhere. We hear about the financial crisis all the time. Australian universities are well-funded by global standards and are well-funded by historical Australian standards. I'm tempted let's, to say, can you say let's that again? Talk, because it's not Let's talk more about that in a, in a few yeah. minutes. There's no free speech crisis at Australian universities. There have been problems 
here and there. The Peter Ridd case is, is an extreme mm. example, but they're rare problems. They've been mostly corrected. Uh, we see a lot of support for freedom of speech at Australian universities. The real crisis is a moral one. The crisis is the question, what master do the universities serve? Are they there for the community or are they there for themselves? This is the fundamental question at the heart of everything about Australia's universities and universities globally as well. They increasingly, well, we gave them enormous autonomy to operate as independent institutions doing what's good for society, but according to their own cognizance, that they could follow the, you know, the stars uh, toward, towards the truth, towards what's really best for our young people and for society as a whole. But unfortunately, when you give people that kind of self-control or self-authority, it too often ends up as self-indulgence. <laughs> what we see in Australia's universities especially is a load of self-indulgence, of universities pursuing university goals without regard to what's good for their students, what's good for the country, uh, what's good for the world. It's really just all about the universities as institutions. And that's why when it comes to university policy, for the most part, the group of eight universities of Australia, the National Tertiary Education Union, the student unions, they're pretty much all on the same side because they're fighting for the universities, not fighting for the community. I'll come back to that in a moment. To take a cul-de-sac, but a very important one, you said you don't think there's a free speech crisis, right. and yet it's frequently painted uh, as a, 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 a narrowness in right. views, a reluctance to engage different ideas. Perhaps the greater problem is well, that there's not a lot of people putting an alternative. There view. is a viewpoint diversity problem. Your guest, Jonathan Haidt, uh, has talked quite a bit about that. Yeah. Um, that viewpoint diversity problem arises from, again, from the university's autonomy. They hire who they want to hire. Yeah. Now, initially, when the University of Sydney was set up, it, the hiring was done by a panel of people in Sydney who had mm. uh, university degrees from the mother country, and they hired probably a pretty good set, a diverse set of people to run their university. But over time, as that set of people hires their successors and hires their successors and hires their successors, they go into very narrow avenues of, well, very constrained fields of thought that maybe are interesting to the people who run universities, but aren't necessarily interesting to students or to the rest of the world. More importantly, they become politicized all in one direction. I, I mean, if you imagine giving a group of either you know, liberals or conservatives or progressives control over an organization, maybe they only have 60% control. Well, every hiring committee is 60% on one side. The next generation's hiring committee is 80% on one side. The next generation's hiring committee is 95% yeah. on one side. And that's what's happened with universities. They've you can gone see from, that. Yeah, they, they've gone from being places that broadly reflected society. You yeah. know, all of the university graduates in society together nominate who the next generation's professors will be, to being places that really represent a very narrow segment of public opinion. Uh, they, they are not broadly reflective of society in the way, say, the business community is. I mean, the business community, there are labor donors, there are liberal donors, there are people who you know, donate to third parties, there are people who vote for every... I mean, if the business community were all on one side, you wouldn't really have competitive elections in Australia. Well, the university community is all on one side. <laughs> it is, it is, and I don't just mean the arts faculties, I mean the entire university, you would struggle 
to find uh, liberal or national party supporters in Australia's universities. I'm sure there are a few hidden in the, in the little nooks, uh, afraid to poke their heads above the parapets. Uh, you know, I've had people email me saying, Salvatore, thanks for pointing this out, uh, but I wouldn't say anything in public. Well, you know, I'm an American. I'm not part of these Australian political debates. I'm just here kind of to help Australians understand what's going on in their own universities, in their institutions that they pay for. And this is uh, uh, something you can actually track, as I understand it, both in uh, America and in the UK, yeah. for example. There's a lot of work that We have a lot of that... survey work in the US. There's, there's none yeah. in Australia that I'm aware of, but the phenomenon, it's very clear in Australia. Yeah. That, uh, it, it... The sort of numbers we're talking about are really very graphic. You go back 30 years ago and you had a surprisingly even split between yeah. those who would self-identify as left of centre and those of right. Now it's overwhelmingly, minuscule numbers who will self-identify as anything yeah. other than left of centre. And people's politics are not the issue. People have a right to their own politics. It's their behaviour that's the problem. It's once yeah. you have a department that is so dominated by one point of view, they just don't question that point of view. They don't question, well, should people be thinking anything else? It's just mm -hmm. not part of polite discussion. Uh, I teach a class on the future of work at, at the University of Sydney, and it's simply accepted that the future of work should be socialist. Now, if I point out that, well, there are a lot of people who don't agree with that, probably the majority of people who don't agree with that, well, that makes me a serious outlier. In does, a way, does this go back to the very thing you're talking about, though? a technical class, an expertocracy that doesn't care what ordinary people think, it's not relevant? It's not that they don't care. I think they're even unaware that such a, a gulf exists. They delegitimize the gulf. That is, if there's a gulf, it's because those people who disagree are cretins, racists, <laughs> sexists. Something is wrong with them if they disagree. That's really the problem. If we just had polite disagreements, all right. Even if university professors disagreed with the general population on an issue, fine, they're better educated, they've studied the problem. Uh, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is a self-referential uh, group of people who no longer even are aware that there are other valid opinions or believe that other opinions simply aren't valid. And the reason is that they don't find those opinions in their colleagues. They don't find those opinions in their PhD students. Uh, they may find them in their undergraduates occasionally, but you know, it's very tough to be an undergraduate who disagrees. And I want to emphasize this is not limited to the humanities and social sciences. This is something we find, you may think that there's no such thing as, uh, you know, socialist physics or socialist math, uh, but I guarantee you there is. Really? <laughs> is, so, it's, it, because it's not, it's not so in the- So two plus two doesn't automatically Well, because four. it's not in the mathematics itself. It's in the way we value things. So for example, does a mathematics paper stand on its own or, are we seeking to advance the careers specifically of female mathematicians because we feel bad that a mathematics department is 95% male? Well, now, there are good reasons to want to diversify mathematics departments. And I'm, you know, I'm not a conservative. I, I'm not, I don't have a strong viewpoint on what are the right answers here. But I do believe that there are legitimate viewpoints on both sides of these debates. And increasingly, there is no legitimate space to object at universities. And not just my university, my university is pretty good about this, uh, but in the whole university system in general, it's impossible to object. Now, the one thing the book focuses on 
is not so much culture but funding, uh, you can't object to the proposition that universities are underfunded. <laughs> I think my book is the only book in Australian history to suggest that Australian universities are actually pretty well funded. But it's just, it's just a, a funny example of the same phenomenon of group thing. We'll come to funding in a minute because that's a very important point. But just continuing on this cul-de-sac, uh, we've all heard for a very long time now, young people at university say, I have to write my essays in the way that will meet approval, not necessarily yeah. based on what I think. We've all heard that. Yeah. That ought to, in any self-reflecting and honest lecturer or tutor, set off alarm bells. More than that, though, I was struck, I mean, let's be frank about this. Sometimes you, you know you are in the presence of a powerful mind who really gets things. I was talking to a young oh, I student. thought you meant me. Oh, well, <laughs> I wouldn't be talking to you if you didn't have something valuable to say. But um, uh, a, a really strikingly intelligent young man I was talking yeah. to, he was classic, uh, uh, you know, sort of a kid from a t difficult background come good. Right. You know, you would expect him to have quite left-of-centre views. Uh, whereas I would say he's a genuine centrist. But he just said to me as we walked around his campus, which happened to be in Canberra, he said, most of my lecturers and tutors don't realise that virtually all of their students see straight through their obsession with their ideology and their self-righteousness and don't believe it. They dismiss it. Why does that sort of... I mean, why can't... You've touched on it. Why can't academics understand that the people they're talking to are not dumb? and they can see they're having a line fed to them and that they're not being allowed to express an alternative view. Look, all of us are opinionated, not just academics. The problem is that in what do you mean? other... Oh, oh, I'm not opinionated. Except you, John. <laughs> uh, the problem is that in academia, we are self-regulating, yeah. which means we don't have a boss or a panel or anyone we have to answer to for the way we teach and the way we grade papers. I mean, yes, in extremists there are mechanisms, but fundamentally we each do what we want without oversight. Now, I love not having oversight as an academic. It's fantastic. But I recognize that everyone, everyone needs a boss, right? And it, it's, it's good for the soul to have to justify your work to somebody. Uh, we never have to do that. Certainly not our classroom teaching. And we do have to justify our research work to some extent in our annual reviews. But in our teaching, as long as the teaching evaluations are not terrible, yeah, teaching is fine. Uh, we don't get observed. And it's not just that we don't get observed by each other. You, even universities that do classroom observation simply have colleagues observe each other, which reinforces the groupthink. It doesn't break it. What we should have are outsiders observing. I, mean, I, I, would, I would love to see uh, an education minister or a senator or a member of or an MLA come to my classroom just to see what's going on. We might see, try After, that idea on something. Give it a try. After all, the people yeah. are funding my classroom. That was where I wanted to go now. These people have, uh, you know, you, you painted a picture a moment ago of them uh, not being in tune at all with the people who actually provide them with their bread and butter. It's Australian taxpayers. Right. And they think they're funding universities so their students can be well-educated and that universities, through their children, as much as anything else, can help us grow a flourishing uh, and, and, and productive and, and prosperous society, why is there no sense of responsibility to the broader community when they're paying the bills, if for no other reason, Salvatore, than this, they are in grave danger of losing the confidence of the Australian taxpayers? They are, mm. believe you me, I can read the tea leaves, I've been in public yeah. life long enough, 
people are beginning to ask very hard questions about what they're getting for their dollar. Almost all academics sincerely believe that they are working in the best interests of the Australian public. They all believe they are, but without any effective oversight that allows people to become self-indulgent. And when that self-indulgence then becomes, again, self-referential, it's always the same people judging each other, uh, it goes into these really strange, quirky uh, dead ends, uh, intellectual dead ends, that, well, are very fun to be in if you're there, but don't do much for society as a whole. I would love to see much more accountability. And not just accountability in the sense of you have to perform in the top 100 on some ranking. That's what universities want. That's the kind of accountability universities are looking for. I mean actual engagement with society. I mean, almost everyone I know says that they truly believe in an engaged academia. Well, engaged doesn't just mean with a small number of activists who you favor. Engaged means with the business community, with religious communities, uh, with political parties uh, of all stripes. Right? And that kind of engagement, I think, is, is very rare. Um, to come back to this question of simply reading um, the body language and uh, interacting properly with your students, I, I still struggle to understand how tutors and academics can't recognise that so many of their students, it's anecdotal, I don't have any yeah. research, but I've got to say, I get it all the time, can't recognise that many of their students feel silenced, they feel they have to attune their ideas to what the lecturer or the tutor wants, at the very least, again, back to self-interest. They're pumping a whole lot of people out into the community who are going to be very sceptical about them in the future. They're going to be tomorrow's taxpayers. Many of them will go on to be successful business people that you might want to fund research grants or fund a new humanities chair. And they're going to say, oh, look what they did with the Centre for Western Civilization. Uh, they'll allow all these Confucius centres, but not... Where, where's the missing link in what might be called simple EQ? Emotional <laughs> intelligence. We're talking about people here who have high IQs. Where's the EQ? I still think there's a missing link there. Why can't they read the impact that they're having in their young, mostly young uh, students' uh, psyche? There is a very convenient "we pretend to teach, you pretend to learn" compact. That's fraught universities. It's very convenient. Uh, what students want from me is tell us what's on the test or if we're giving papers, tell me what you want me to write. We're even encouraged to give sample essays so that students can simply rewrite the essay we've written, filling in the <laughs> words with their own words. Now, students love that. That's the most popular teacher in the world, one who gives a sample essay and all you have to do is you know, do what the teacher wanted you to do. Uh, of course, it's easy teaching as well. Uh, at Australian universities, you may not be aware, uh, class attendance is a rarity. Mm. All you have to do is do the actual work. It's almost like what we used to call challenging a class. There was this notion at the old uh, you know, Oxbridge system that you could challenge a class by taking the exam. You didn't necessarily have to attend the class. Learning was not a, an activity. It was simply a certification of what you know. Well, that's effectively how a lot of teaching happens, or a lot of education, I won't call it teaching, happens in Australia 
today. Not just in Australia. Same thing in the U.S. at the lower prestige universities. Outside, outside the very expensive private universities in the U.S., a lot of it's the same thing. It's you know, tell us what you, need, what you need us to do as students, very pragmatic. Academics tell them. The students give it back. And it's not all, I mean, there's a lot of quote unquote, you know, criticism of left wing professors. Uh, I'll tell you, I, I was a, myself a tutor uh, for a very conservative professor, and all the students in his class turned in arch conservative papers. Is that right? And I, and so I, the cynicism on both sides. Oh, yeah. And, and, I, and I told him, you know, they're just pulling, no one actually believes what they're saying here. They're just pulling us over on you. And he didn't believe it. Until I showed him, <laughs> I went in detail through the papers, showing him how, you know, just the, no one's read, no one's read anything. All they're doing is giving you the politics they believe you want. And, and for him, it was eye-opening, and he then, you know, took a more active interest in the papers. But it's uh, it's endemic, right? It, it's endemic. It's a problem. Uh, how do we get away from it? Again, I think we need to view universities as a community, not as just a, uh, you know, a certification system. I mean, as, we turn, as we're moving more and more towards online universities, the, the model is simply one of certifying knowledge. If students can learn this material, wherever they learn it doesn't matter. As long as they can learn material and pass a test, they get it. And we see this. I mean, all of us in large organizations have done these um, you know, diversity exercises. My favorite is the human slavery module that right. everyone's required to do. You click, 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 take the test. You've done your human... Your, your, your human slavery, uh, your, your modern slavery module. Well, that's how education is becoming. And, and again, I want to repeatedly stress, not just in the arts and social sciences. It's that way, I, I've seen it that way in accounting at Australian universities, where students simply have to learn for themselves what things are supposed to put in which boxes. They're not learning how to think about the firm. They're just learning, what do I have to put in this box to pass this class? And now we could say it's probably not that way in a lot of the more difficult sciences, but then it's very few students who are in those difficult science subjects. And I think we too often glorify sciences, imagining that they're more respectable somehow than they are. I mean, I myself did a master's in applied mathematics, and I have to say I didn't get much teaching. <laughs> it, was it was sink or swim. If you can learn applied mathematics on your own, you can get your master's. If you can't, well, you fail out. Well, that's maybe not as bad as what happens in some humanities subjects, but it's not much better. Well, that's why you're getting a great uniformity of views uh, out in the broader community from people who have been through the university system, and they're now about 40% of the population. So you're getting an, I notice this, you're getting an increasing gulf between what university graduates think, as I say now, a big chunk of the Australian community, and what, for example, people in the tradie belt think. <laughs> That's true. But a lot of it is that people have learned uh, how to answer the question. I don't know if it's their view. So, for example, yeah. famously, young people embrace socialism. Yeah. Okay. If you ask people on a survey, young people, half of them or more than half of them will say they embrace socialism. Among university graduates, it's two-thirds, three-quarters. It's, it's an alarming number. Ask them instead, should all private cafes be closed down and a state cafe open in their place? No one's going to vote for that. Should Uber be prohibited? and you must take a regulated state-controlled taxi. No one's going to vote for it. You know, so their, their understanding, they know that the key word, that they're, they know how they're supposed to answer the test. And when they get that survey, they know they're supposed to answer socialism, good capitalism, bad. And then they go to their favorite mom-and-pop cafe, and then they book an Uber, <laughs> and then they want to get a gig job so they don't have to work in a nine-to-five standard employment job. So. Uh, 
you know, I, I think it's we shouldn't be so worried about the ideology. We should be much be more worried about just the lack of depth. Well, the lack of depth. I wonder how anybody could come out of an Australian university without at least asking the question, where has socialism worked? That's a reasonable challenge. Uh, but again, ask what socialism means for a university student. <laughs> well, that might be an even better beginning point. Uh, what do you mean by socialism? And, and then show me a model that's worked. Uh, yeah. So, so no one, I, I've never met a, well, I will take that back. I have met one Australian university student in 14 years who thought North Korea and East Germany were good ideas. Oh, really? Um, what? Had he been there? <laughs> he or no, she been there? No, he hadn't. Uh, yeah. But uh, he knew of people who had. Uh, yeah. And that's one out of thousands. Uh, so Many I, of them I know will say the Scandinavian models. But of course, they're not socialist. Well, Scandinavia is not socialist at all. They're very free enterprise. They're different because they're very homogenous societies where people are prepared to pay a lot of tax. But their underlying economic model uh, is very free enterprise. Yeah, they're, well, they're what called active labor market policies, they're mm. called in, in Scandinavia and the Netherlands. Mm. Uh, they are designed to enable people to participate more fully in the capitalist economy. Yeah. Call that socialist if you want. Look, from an American standpoint, Australia is socialist because it has Medicare. <laughs> um, I have yet to meet, well, uh, I don't know if I've met anyone in Australia who wants to privatize Medicare. I'm sure there are some people, but most Australians accept this socialist mm. experiment in healthcare because, well, what are you going to do if someone's sick? You want to mm. care for them, regardless of their ability to pay. Yeah. So we have Medicare. Is Australia a socialist country? Well, from an American standpoint, yes. Uh, from a real socialist country standpoint, nowhere close. Well, that's uh, very uh, informative. Um, but let me come to something that I, I think um, is of real interest to all of us in this country. Our universities are funded by the taxpayer to a greater degree than most universities in, in, in other Western countries. Right. I think that's fair to say. Right, right. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about how we're funded vis-a-vis, -vis, say, the American model? and Give us some of your feeling, uh, some of your research findings on the on the real problem of funding of our universities. Australia's universities are funded by the Commonwealth. That's the full stop. Version. That, that's that's uh, yes. There are some other minor sources of funding, but almost entirely they're funded by the Commonwealth. Now it's very different in the U.S. The U.S. has not only private universities, but even the quote-unquote public universities in the U.S. are only state-supported not usually state-run. It depends right. on the state. There are some states mm -hmm. where university professors are civil servants, but the, the general model is one of state subsidy, uh, not of actual state funding for universities. Because many of the great American universities were really private They're private charities. Often set up by churches. They A lot were, of them are church-related yeah. charities. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the older ones were almost all church-related. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Harvard was set up by Puritans. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, of course, the more prestigious ones are now mo mostly secular, uh, but they're still charities. Um, which, yeah, with all of that implies in terms of tax deductibility and attractiveness for the philanthropic sector. But here in Australia, our oldest university is the one that you lecture at, at Sydney. Mm -hmm. And it was very much set up on English lines. Um, it was... Sidere uh, mens de mutato. The stars may change, but the life of the mind remains the same. Our, our much maligned and mostly forgotten university motto. Yeah. yeah. Stripped yeah. off everything, yeah. <laughs> but, it, mm. but it's still there in stone. <laughs> but it was based on, <laughs> on, the, on the Oxford model, Oxford-Cambridge model of colleges. Yes, very much. Very tutorials much. being yeah. offered yeah. in the college system. Neo-Gothic architecture, the whole The, the whole, whole, bit, whole yeah. box and dice, yeah. 1850s on. Yeah. 
Uh, and of course, uh, you know, uh, set up on pretty rigidly secular lines as well at the time, mm -hmm. interestingly enough, yeah. uh, but not with that same uh, Well, the colleges sector. were were and are, uh, have religious affiliations. They do, but not but the, the university, university itself. does not, yes. Yeah. Uh, and its funding model was so very different. So can you, uh, as it's evolved, so now it's the taxpayers through the Commonwealth. Right. Um, and, and you're saying they're actually quite well funded by Western They're very science. well funded. Uh, the uh, Group of Eight loves to cherry pick specific numbers from OECD tables to show that research in Australia is underfunded. But that's only because in Australia we have, uh, well, most research in Australia is actually funded through the students, through Commonwealth-supported places. We, we don't think of that as a form of research support, but if you think of it, I produce research outputs every year for the University of Sydney. I don't have an ARC grant. Uh, you know, my salary is funded straight out of student, uh, teaching students. Right? So we don't recognize in the statistics the research done by teaching and research academics as research. The statistics in Australia and in the OECD only recognize activities that are explicitly funded as research to be research. When you throw in all government support for research, including the 40%, I mean, I'm rated, most academics in most Australian universities are rated 40, 40, 20 teaching research service. So my salary is devoted 40, 40, 20 in that formula. And, and virtually all, all uh, permanent academics in Australia are on that same 40, 40, 20 formula. If you take my 40% of salary that's research uh, dedicated and you include that in the research numbers, then Australian universities appear to be on OECD statistics better funded than better funded for research than either US or UK universities, even more well-funded than US universities. Now, no one in Australia is arguing that the US has underfunded research universities. Uh, you know, if, you, if you don't cherry pick the numbers, but instead take, you know, pull back, take a dispassionate look at the numbers, Australian universities per student are better funded than US universities, better funded than UK universities, better than European Union universities, better than the OECD average. That funding is more stable because Australian Commonwealth funding is very stable over time. Um, and it is better, Australian universities are better funded than they've ever been in Australia. Uh, there was a short period, well, not so short, from 2012 to 2017, when there was a decline per student in Commonwealth funding, it was about 1% per year. But over that period, the numbers of students funded increased by almost 2% per year. So there was an economy of scale. And that was the fabled efficiency dividend. Uh, Commonwealth funding was supposed to go down by, depending whether you were labor or liberal, uh, you 1.75 to 4%, I think, were the range of the various promises. It went down 1% per year. But now it's been climbing again since 2017. So really, there's no funding crisis at Australian universities. Yet, you can go back and every five or 10 years, there's a Universities of Australia or a Australian Vice Chancellor's uh, Committee publication saying, Australia's universities are in crisis. We can only last a few more years before the whole system will collapse. It's been the, I mean, researching this book <laughs> has been a, a lesson in mendacity of the, the constant cries of uh, crying poor of Australian universities. They're, we're very generously funded by global standards. Okay, so let me take um, your position as a true centrist, neither left nor right. Um, and, and I accept your word on that, and uh, clearly that's the territory you occupy. 
you've got all of the, uh, uh, if you like, divergent views here. The university is going to be underfunded, the taxpayer wondering whether they're getting value for the money. Uh, uh, you know, ministers supposedly oversighting the sector on behalf of the taxpayer looking for value for the nation. Where do you think we should go here? I mean, what, what spell out what you think the options are uh, to try and reconcile these differences. Number one thing Australia has to do is dial down inter international student numbers. I mean, we've had this international student debate now for years. Australians don't seem to realize that international student numbers at Australian universities are extraordinary by global standards. I mean, absolutely extreme to the point where 2019, 2% 2 of the Australian population was international students. Yeah. <laughs> you know, 20% of all people in the university age range in Australia were international students. It's just unbelievable. Um, Australian universities, I think, uh, 26 Australian universities would be the most international university in the entire United States. Were they in the United States? The, the numbers are just off the charts. Um, well, were, but pre-COVID. Oh, still are. Uh, COVID still. only was a tiny blip in international student numbers during coronavirus. At my own university, University of Sydney, international student tuition revenue actually rose. But the person in the street would say, we're here from the universities, it's created a crisis. Universities have got poor in 2020 and 21, and it was through poor investments. The revenue from their investment portfolios declined dramatically. In fact, among group of eight universities, investment losses were larger than international student fee revenue losses. What's happening to the people running their portfolios? What I don't know what's going wrong because stock markets have done very well. In the US, the average endowment was flat in 2020 and was increasing by double digits in 2021. So what the, now, what Australian universities are investing in, I can't tell you. Well, we know now they're not investing in certain things for politically correct reasons. Everything about, everything about Australian universities is quote-unquote commercial in confidence. And those three words tell you everything you need to know because these are not commercial entities. These are public service organizations. Why all the investment data are commercial in confidence? Because it's embarrassing. I don't know. That's extraordinary. It'd be lovely to hear some answers from the universities and indeed from governments. Well, the worst part of it, of it is not only are international student numbers extreme, Australian universities are losing money on every international student they admit. Now, this is fascinating because we keep hearing it's one of the country's major forms of foreign in income. Well, it, it is a big source of export revenue, quote unquote, if your goal for a university is to generate export revenues. But if your goal for a university is financial sustainability of the university, international students are not a savior. They're actually a part of the problem. If you actually calculate Australian domestic funding, combining what the Commonwealth pays with what students pay, total Australian funding per domestic student is higher on average than international student tuition per student. It has been for 20 years. Uh, it is at the individual university level at most universities, not at all universities. For the system as a whole, it equalized in 2019, uh, but they equalize only because international students tend to be at the most expensive universities. If you go to the individual university, for the most part, international students still pay less. What they're doing is cannibalizing the university's infrastructure to sell international student places at a discount. 
So essentially what they're saying is the Commonwealth pays for the library, libraries here anyway. We can admit a thousand international students and not charge them a library fee. Libraries here, Commonwealth's paying for it. The campus is here, the Commonwealth is paid for it. Even the teachers are here. The Commonwealth supported students are paying for the teacher. We can stuff another, you know, in, in, every, in every class of 100 students, we can stuff in 50 more international students without having to hire a new teacher. They only have to account for the variable costs. How many new tutors do we need for the extra sections that open up? And it is that extreme. I mean, for every 100 domestic students, roughly speaking, there are 50 international students. It's, it's come to be about a third of the total Australian student population. Those international students and 2% are- 2% at its height of the Australian population. Australian population. Placing enormous stress in some parts of the country on infrastructure. Oh, absolutely. But the, the, the real crime here, the real moral failing here is that Australian universities are undercharging international students because that money is free revenue. Yeah. You can free cash flow. You can do what you want with it. Commonwealth supported places, well, that money has to go for specific purposes of the Commonwealth is funding. International student places, you just take that class that's being paid for by the Australian taxpayer and whatever international students you can stuff into it, that money, except for a little bit that goes to the tutor, that money is now free to do what they want with. And that's why Australian universities have an enormous number of strategic research initiatives paid for by central funds, meaning vice chancellor's office. Well, where do central funds come from? International students. I see. So you're saying though, that, that in a sense, the real funding crisis that they're facing comes from poor investment portfolio outcomes. Um, and that although they make, if you like, a marginal um, profit on foreign students by running down capital, effectively drawing on capital, uh, it's not really working for the Australian students. I think that's the key point that I draw out of that. Australian students are being stripped down to provide places for international students who aren't even paying a premium. They're simply paying in uh, free cash instead of in dedicated cash flows. If Australia's universities are not quite the quality that we think we are, if I could uh, just explore that for a moment, why is there so much demand internationally to secure a place at an Australian university? Doesn't it actually suggest that they, they, those universities are still offering um, very high quality education? Or is it simply a matter of... Um, it's very prestigious to have a degree from the University of Sydney or whatever. It is neither of those. John, the truth is, it's neither. Australia, international students come to Australia for two reasons. They come because it's underpriced and the lifestyle is great. Underpriced? It's Australian university education is much cheaper than certainly in North America. It is competitive with the UK, but the UK prices are now going up. And there are good reasons to believe the UK has been underpriced for international students. That's has a lot of technical reasons having to do with EU students and their requirement to enroll EU students on UK mm -hmm. terms. By international standards, Australia, an Australian education is relatively inexpensive. It has a beautiful lifestyle. So if you're choosing between you know, Toronto <laughs> or Manchester or Sydney or Melbourne, you know, I know where I would want to go. Um, and it's a reasonably respected degree. I mean, uh, they're not they're not garbage degrees by any means. They are respected degrees and they are quality degrees in the same way that a, you know, competitive with a, not so much with a US UK degree, but competitive with a Canadian 
degree. But the real reason is price. And I know that, and I have this data in the book, because there's an almost perfect correlation between the Australian dollar exchange rate and new enrollments of international students at Australian universities. Uh, we had a crisis of international student enrollments in 2009, 10, 11. Everyone was talking about it. How come Chinese students don't want to come to Australia anymore? And the answer is dollar parity. <laughs> when the Australian dollar reached one US dollar, well, it was no longer cheap to study at Australian university and no one wanted to come. The Australian dollar goes back down to 0. 70 cents. Yeah, enrollments pick up again. It's all about the price. We've talked quite a bit about foreign students. Uh, and there's been no little focus on the issues of the number of Australian universities that have set up Confucius centres, which yeah, seem to 13. be largely a rule under themselves. Yeah. So I could never quite understand why it was that the idea of having a course for Western civilization <laughs> would intrude on a university's autonomy. I'd be interested in your views on that because it sounded very hollow to me and very unconvincing, I have to say, for most of the universities. But having said that, um, can you just unpack what's happened to the Confucius centres? Uh, have they disappeared or have they been renamed? And then, of course, there's this internationally uh, active um, uh, talents idea uh, that uh, the Chinese have also run. The Confucius Institutes are, frankly, not a real problem. Uh, they're small, they're, they're low-level corruption. <laughs> when I say low-level corruption, I mean that they primarily exist as a way to get uh, Chinese scholars' visas into Australia. They don't make much money. They have very few students. Uh, they simply exist as shells. The question is, why do Australian universities host these shells? Why are they interested in performing these low-level corrupt services for uh, you know, local Chinese governments? Uh, and the reason is that they're very dependent on China for research collaboration. A lot of people think that China controls its hordes of students who are making demands on Australian universities. That's completely false. I mean, I, I've talked to dozens of Chinese students. They don't really care what their government says. Many of them are very patriotic, and on their own account, they may want to stand up for China, but they're not doing China's bidding. Who is doing China's bidding are the vice chancellors. And they're doing China's bidding because a lot of their success on research rankings depends entirely on collaboration with China. Now, a lot of it is just above board collaboration. Professor in Sydney works with a professor in Beijing. Fine, no problem. But a lot of it is this uh, under, the, un, under the table collaboration. And here's where these Thousand Talents programs come in. Thousand Talents programs are programs run by Chinese universities that hire Western academics usually of Chinese origin, not always, but generally they recruit uh, Western academics of Chinese origin, uh, China, PRC Chinese origin, that is of, of, who are citizens of the People's Republic of China, to do research in China while retaining their job at a university abroad. So in Australia, there are estimated, ASPE estimates, Australian Strategic Policy Institute estimates there are more than 300 Australian, Australia domiciled professors who have second jobs in China. And you might be asking yourself, why would a university let their professors moonlight and have a whole second job in China? I mean, why not just fire them? And the reason is that these programs are actually subsidizing Australian research, and not in a small way. Uh, they are subsidizing Australian research to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. The, the way it works 
is that a chemistry professor, chemistry is one of the primary areas where we see Thousand Talents programs, a Chinese chemistry professor at an Australian university, and I say Chinese, I'm not using that ethnically. I mean, someone who's actually a PRC citizen, chemistry professor at an Australian university, is offered the opportunity to run a lab in China. The Chinese government will pay all the expenses, hire up to 100 researchers to work in that lab. And these are big operations. These are not small little uh, research groups. Pay for the chemicals, pay for the lab equipment. If this Australia domiciled professor will direct the research. What does Australia get out of it? The Australian university, the host university, gets the publications. Because this professor has an affiliation at the Australian university, the collaborators have the affiliation at the Chinese university. They publish jointly, collaborative papers, and this raises both universities in the international rankings because they're getting all these high citation, highly funded papers. So Australian universities don't want to end this Corruption, I mean, what's the word for having two jobs, <laughs> two full-time jobs? Uh, they don't want to end this because their professors, these professors are the ones driving Australia up the research rankings. And not in a small way. I mean, the research rankings are extraordinarily sensitive to the output of a very small number of high citation, big science researchers. And that's who's being targeted for Thousand Talents recruitment. Okay. China, at a moment, can cut off the flow here. China's real leverage over Australian universities is through these backdoor, under-the-table mechanisms that universities don't even report. Uh, I mean, Australia has a, uh, a registry where Australian universities must report all of their agreements with Chinese universities. But these are not agreements between an Australian university and a Chinese university. These are individual academics at Australian universities who have a second job in China. Not reportable. It's not a university contract. That's extraordinarily corrupt. And the mechanisms Australia has put in place to detect foreign influence simply aren't designed to pick these up. Still. Oh, I think they're intentionally not designed to pick these up. I mean, the Australian foreign influence schemes were designed with input from the Group of Eight, with input from Universities of Australia. They're very specifically worded <laughs> that if an Australian university has a contract with an entity, in a, with, a, with a university in a foreign country that where the university does not have autonomy, but it's specifically a university in a foreign country, university to university relationships must be reported. That the individual professor at an Australian university happens to run a lab with 100 employees in China, so we could be Not transferring reportable. really valuable intellectual property. Oh, no, 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 no. That's the trick. They're transferring intellectual property to us. When the Australian broke the news of this, the Australian newspaper last year broke the news of these Thousand Talent programs in September, they assumed that this was valuable Australian research paid for by Australian money going to China. Now, I'm sure there's some small amount of that. But fundamentally, this is a PRC Chinese citizen domiciled at an Australian university whose research is funded back in China by the Chinese government, essentially contributing publication credits to the record of the Australian university. And that's why these are untouchable, because from the standpoint of an Australian vice chancellor, this is gold. And the Australian vice chancellor is only paying an ordinary $200,000 professor's salary for this person, and is getting the output of a 100-person research team 
in exchange. That's, that's gold. That gives China enormous leverage, but it is enormous under the table informal leverage. And that's how China works. Nothing, above, nothing on top of the table, nothing visible really is very important. Confucius Institutes, you can read their contracts. They just say, we will work together for a harmonious future. You know, who, what's to object in that? All of these arrangements are informal arrangements. And that gives China enormous power because it can end these relationships at a moment's notice, and no one will even know it happened. Except, of course, the vice chancellor, who's very well aware, even if the vice chancellor has never signed a piece of paper about it. So my takeout on that then is that we shouldn't be worried about the Thousand Talents program so much transferring valuable Australian know-how that might be useful to us to China, so much as the issue of China using this as yet another form of leverage to gain influence in a democratic Australia in common with something we're now seeing globally in the Chinese quest for hegemony, not just in the region, but as many people are now saying globally. I, I don't want to knock Australia. Australia has been very good to me. But uh, let's face it, there's a lot more Chinese know-how out there than Australian know-how. <laughs> China is a much bigger country with much bigger budgets. You can look at the research from the Australia-China Relations Institute at UTS uh, talking about the flow of research in both directions, and it's incredibly higher from, Australia, from China to Australia than from Australia to China. Uh, the problem here is not is our precious knowledge filtering overseas as an academic. I'd love it if our precious knowledge filtered overseas. Uh, I mean, a lot of we're, we're in it to spread knowledge. That's what we want to do. We don't really like the idea of having patents and secrets. We'd much rather have anything we discover spread as widely as possible. That's not the problem. The problem is giving China influence over what we do. And what we're seeing is not Australian research going to China. We're seeing Chinese research being done, in effect, in Australia. I mean, I don't want to cast dispersions. There's nothing, I mean, I'm a foreigner working at Australian University. There's nothing wrong with a Chinese foreigner working at Australian University. But there's no reason to particularly believe we're patriotic Australians. I mean, I'm not a patriotic Australian. I'm an American. And if push comes to shove, that's what I'll always be. And no reason to think Chinese professors aren't just as patriotic for their own countries. Now, I'm not saying get rid of the foreigners. <laughs> Please don't. I love working here. But we need to realize that China weaponizes its citizens and its connections in a way that the United States simply does not. If the US, if the US consulate called and asked me to do something I didn't agree with, you know, I, I, would, I would laugh at them. And I have the freedom to do that. Uh, Chinese people do not necessarily have the freedom to laugh in the face of their representatives. Uh, not only that, it's not just the people, it's, it's the institutions. So China isn't trying to get influenced by, at the retail level by getting its students and academics abroad to implement its programs. China wants influence by having Australians police themselves, by having vice chancellors be so sensitive about China that they crack down on any anti-China opinion on campus, that they don't hire people who might be critical of China. We talked a lot about how uh, there's groupthink at universities, a lack of viewpoint diversity. Well, if you're a critic of China, good luck getting hired at an Australian university. It, it might happen. You might get that job. 
But it's going to be very difficult because everyone up the chain knows that that will cause problems for the university and its relations with China. Uh, it's, uh, but it's even deeper. It's this threat that China has, well, China has a chain around the neck of every group of eight vice chancellor that if they get out of line, it can always tug on saying, well, what about the research? What about the research cooperation? What about the Thousand Talents programs? All, like I said, all under the table. None of it recognized, none of it official, none of it in a contract that you can look at, that you can evaluate. It's all, you know, I know it's happening, you know it's happening, they know it's happening, but there's no paper trail. And that's how Chinese influence really works. It, it happens in these interstitial spaces where you don't know for sure was it Chinese influence. I mean, when UNSW tried to uh, quash the, a, a piece by a human rights advocate writing about China and tried to move it to a less visible part of its website, well, was that just an administrative change or was that a panicked directive from the vice chancellor's office? We'll never know. No one's going to put that in writing. But it happened. It happened, but it could have been a coincidence. You know, if the University of Sydney does not invite the Dalai Lama to speak on campus, but instead hosts him off campus at arm's length, well, is that because of health, workplace health and safety issues? We couldn't accommodate the size of audience? Or is that because of fear of China? Well, no one's going to write the memo that you can subpoena uh, and bring to a court. That's the problem. Chinese influence is corrupting all of us. I mean, we know it's corrupting the minerals <laughs> sector. We know it's corrupting you know, parts of the business world. Uh, but it is deepest of all at the universities. And it's deep because it's invisible. I mean, at least we know why an iron ore miner doesn't want to anger China. Because the miner is selling iron ore to China. Uh, we don't even know exactly whether and how much university leaders are kowtowing to China because it's all off the record. And that at publicly supported institutions. Salvatore, you've given us a very great deal of very important things to think about. I can't thank you enough for the time you've given us. Uh, I, uh, I sincerely hope this book rattles around Australia extensively and in the right places, including ministers' desks, perhaps even prime ministers' desks. Uh, it's thoroughly researched. And the beauty of it is it comes from somebody who thinks the data and the research and the numbers matter. Uh, you're a true scholar rather than <laughs> uh, a captive of one form of ideology or another. I say that quite sincerely. It makes your work all the more powerful. Thank, Thank you. you very much. I'm very proud that the book is thoroughly data-driven. This is not yep. a ideological book. It's 23 tables and figures with data on 20 years of Australian university finances, student numbers, uh, international student flows, degree programs, you name it. It's a thoroughly researched account of what's going on inside Australia's universities. And I have to tell you, John, I, I wrote it with the idea in mind, what would an education minister need to know about his own universities. <laughs> what does a parent need to know about the universities they're paying for, for their children? What do students need to know about how their universities are working behind the scenes? And some of the most gratifying feedback I've received on this book has actually been from students who've read the book and have been thrilled to learn what's going on 
behind the curtain. Uh, that's been my goal. I hope people enjoy the book. Well, it's always tremendous when people respond to research and data and not just feelings. So thank you so much again. All the best with it. And let's hope it moves the dial. Thank you, John. You've been listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.